Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready to be energized and have some serious fun. This is the Energetic Education Podcast. Introducing your host, Dale Sidebottom. Welcome to episode number 72, and today I am joined by one of my very good mates, Shane Pill. Now, for those who have heard of Shane, which I'm sure a lot of you have, he is a absolute dynamite and cutting edge academic who is really changing the way uh, we do a lot of things with our teaching and not only that, instructing as coaches and everything else. Now, today I'm really fortunate to get Shane to share his play with purpose model as well as gamification um, and a few other little gems about not only Shane's background and his journey to be where he is now and presenting all over the world. So sit back, enjoy. This is Shane Pill. Shane, g'day buddy. How are you, mate? I'm going well. Thank you, Dale. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast today. I'm uh, really excited. It's been a long time coming. And uh, one of the things I want to start with is um, I've always been fascinated with this. I know you've explained it to me, but you regard yourself as an accidental academic. It, can, you explain, <laughs> can you explain this, Deborah? Because I found it really fascinating when you first told me about it. I'm an accidental academic because I wanted to escape the office. I wanted to, I found myself as a deputy principal um, and a, a contract had been put in front of me for another 12 months in the acting uh, role as deputy principal and there was career planning occurring about what to apply for in the next 12 months in order to become a substantive deputy or a primary principal. And it was those conversations that crystallised in my mind that while I, I could see a lot of interest and reward in the challenge of being principal, particularly in a school that had an appetite for a, a reformist agenda. I, I wasn't enjoying the role of deputy principal and a lot of the administration that, that came with that. I never wanted to be in a job where I found myself in an office for most of the day. And yet after four years, as a, as a deputy principal senior leader in a school, I was spending most of my day in an office and it was a reflection that that's not how I wanted to um, be as a professional, that's not why I came into the teaching profession, led me to look for an exit strategy back into the classroom. And I had hoped that exit strategy would take me back into being a, a head of um, department, domain leader, I think they call it in Victoria. And there weren't many of those opportunities uh, opening up. And a job came up at Flinders University and, and my wife encouraged me to apply for it um, because it would get me back in the classroom, so to speak. And I was fortunate enough to secure that position. So I took two years leave without pay to try it out and see if it was a, an opportunity that I wanted to stick with. And, and it was, uh, it was a, a, a career diversion, but still involved in teaching. So I didn't set out with a deliberate strategy to become an academic, I accidentally became an academic <laughs> as an exit strategy from uh, principal leadership pathway. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's a really great story. And as you said, you're still at Flinders now. Can you explain what your role is there? I know you're mentoring a lot of up and coming teachers and so forth. Um, what's your actual role there, Shane? My teaching role is physical education and sport pedagogy. The, so the topic that I, and one of the undergraduate topics I coordinate is about the common 
pedagogy that sports coaches and PE teachers uh, use to create meaningful learning of games and sport. The other topics that I teach into are curriculum studies, preparing people to be able to deliver the health and PE curriculum, uh, whether that be as a, a primary school PE teacher or primary school generalist, or a, a secondary specialist um, health and physical education teacher. My current leadership role is the academic program leaders for health education, physical education and sport degree programs. So that involves uh, everybody that's doing physical education or health education as a major or minor, plus everybody that's doing the Bachelor of Sport, Health and Physical Activity degree and the double, no, sorry, we call them combined degrees, such as sport and business um, that are associated with the Bachelor of Sport, Health and Physical Activity degree. Well, mate, so you, you are wearing quite a lot of hats. You've gone from a, uh, a deputy principal role where I'm sure you weren't doing much teaching, you're probably dealing with uh, a lot of parents and so forth like that. And now you're in such a fortunate position. And um, with that role that you have now, you present all over the world. You run keynotes, uh, you run training sessions, you do it all. You're an author. Um, Mate, what, what's a highlight for you? I know you do a lot of travel um, and you love it and you present really well. And it was, it was an absolute pleasure to not only meet you in person, but see you present in Dubai um, last year. What's the highlight of being able to do what you do? Well, that's a, a difficult question. There, there, are many, there are many highlights. The highlights come on a daily basis where the, your creativity in designing a learning situation uh, works the way that you envisaged it would work in your mind when you are planning it. That's that's a, a you know, personally rewarding and therefore a joyful experience. The the opportunity to see the work that some of our graduates are doing in schools and the way they're developing into leaders in the field gives me great pleasure as well to know that I've played some part in their role as an educator. Um, every now and again, and all teachers would experience this, you have these uh, moments of awesomeness uh, when a past student comes up to you and says, you know that moment when you were telling me off in school? Well, that was significant because you made me reflect on how I was at the time and I decided to be something else. And I just wanted to let you know that impact on me. And um, the parable of the sower comes to mind, you know, some of the some of the seeds fall on fertile ground, some sprout early, some sprout late, and some never sprout at all. That's the nature of the work that we do. Um, so there are there are multiple points of, of joy. I, as we are saying before we come on air, I get bored easily. Um, so, so often for me, it really is nothing more substantial than finding things to do. I like that. And, and getting joy out of finding things to do. And I guess the, the beauty of what you do and uh, the books you've written and studies you've done is allowing you to travel around the world and run some amazing keynotes and I suppose see some really cool countries. Is, is that something you ever thought uh, when you were deputy principal that uh, in four years' time you would be travelling all over the world keynoting and seeing the world? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's quite ironic. Uh, as an academic, you get lots of opportunities to travel to international conferences and to highlight the work that you do and to make um, connections with like-minded individuals doing similar research so that you can do international comparisons, not just local comparisons. And for the first 
five to eight years of my my life at Flinders University, I didn't take up those opportunities and and largely didn't seek them. I'm I've never had great ambitions to travel the world. I, I get bored on planes, and so for someone like myself sitting on a plane for 10, 12, 14, 15 hours is is not something that is to be looked forward to. Um, so my wife, however, has had a passion to travel from a young age, and unfortunately due to life circumstances, etc., we're at a stage now where we're able to invest in that, but I'm the one that's had the opportunity to travel and yet it's my wife who has the passion to travel. So there's a lovely, <laughs> there's a lovely irony there. And, and really it's, it's my wife uh, who has encouraged me to take up those opportunities as they've been presented to me. Um, otherwise I would have, might have been more inclined to go, you know what, I can't think of anything worse than sitting in a plane for 14 hours. <laughs> but my, my wife encouraging me to take advantage of those opportunities has led me to grow and develop in ways that I hadn't imagined possible and, and I'm now very grateful for those opportunities and the personal growth and professional opportunities that they've provided and I see the wisdom in my wife's encouragement of me to pursue those opportunities. Yeah, I can see that too, mate, because... Uh what you've been able to do is really incredible. And I love reading everything you're producing. And one thing I keep seeing a lot that you're coming up with lately is play with purpose. Now, um, this might be new to a lot of listeners. Can you sort of explain uh, your idea and what you've created here when, you, when you've started writing about play with purpose? Yeah, it's a 10-year, initially a 10-year journey that's now another eight years past that original journey. So back in the, about about 1993, I was doing some professional development in, in Perth where I was teaching at the time. And I came across the work of Rick Charlesworth and his discussion of designer games and packaging in sports coaching, the technical, the tactical and the fitness components into a game so you didn't have to train the three components separately. And he would be using a lot of what I might call match simulations in order to deliberately coach his players into game understanding. So there was nothing that they hadn't experienced um, before the game, sorry, in the game that they hadn't experienced before the game in training. And I went to another session at Edith Cowan University where uh, an academic there was talking about some of the work that had come out of Loughborough around teaching games for understanding. Then there was a bit of professional development around the GameSense approach as the Australian Sports Commission was releasing that as its major direction for sports coaching, particularly at the junior level uh, in Australia. I started to play around with those ideas in my sport coaching and then I started to bring those ideas into my secondary physical education classes as well. And I was encouraged to persist with those ideas because the the anecdotal evidence, the, the feeling that I was getting was that there was a deeper engagement by the students because it was connecting with their interest in coming to PE, which was they wanted to play games. And it, over time, it changed the nature of the conversation from when are we going to play a game, are we going to play a game today, to what game are we playing today in PE? And that, that shift in questioning was quite... Um, powerful in, in both meaning, the meaning that the students were making out of physical education, but also the capacity to engage those people more deeply 
in the ideas that I wanted to come across in the lessons because we had them motivated to come to class because they wanted to know what game we were going to play today. There was interest, high levels of interest in them coming to the PE class. When I came to Adelaide, uh, I worked in a school and there was a bit of a generational change in the phys ed department and a couple of the young phys ed teachers that had started there before me said, yeah, phys ed's not really working. High levels of disengagement, not a lot of motivation. We need to do something different. So 30 years of age, I was the oldest and most experienced teacher, phys ed teacher in the team. So we sat down over six months, we had a lot of conversations. I talked about the exploration of the game sense idea that I'd, I'd been doing in my previous role. And they said, well, let's give that a go. And we worked out a five year plan to start with the year eights the next year, moving into more game-based teaching and, and theming the curriculum around the categories of games rather than teaching specific sports and providing some negotiation with the students around what the form of the sport would be because the game category was set. And we we're really clear around the concepts that we wanted to teach. So we had a common core, which was the concepts, the common structure of thematic um, categorization of games. And we we're using a game-based game approach, which meant the first experience every lesson was playing a game. And in 1996, when I started at the school, we had five, four or five students out of a cohort of 50 odd doing year 12 PE and only one semester of year 11 PE. Um, mid 2000s when I left the school, six years later, we had 21 students doing year 12 PE out of a cohort of roughly 50 odd and two semesters, semester one and semester two of year 11, we'd been able to bring in due to student demand a year elective into our year nine elective programs. And, and we had massively increased the number of kids wanting to play school sport. And it was all down to the changes, the, the structural and the content changes that we've made to physical education program. And people started to hear about what we were doing. First of all, schools close to us and then more broadly, and people you know, would ask to hear about what we we're doing. And Rob Frizick, uh, who I was working with at the time and myself, we found we were being asked to present um, at conferences and seminars about the game sense approach and how we we're engaging the kids. And after five or six years of you know, being invited to ask at conferences and run workshops and demonstrate the activities, I had a 20 or 30 page handout, which I was basically giving to people. And the former national executive director of ASPR Australia said to me, have you ever thought about publishing that? And I just started at, at Flinders University and part of our academic role is to produce and disseminate ideas, knowledge, knowledge generation and dissemination. So I hadn't thought about publishing it, but it was now part of my role to publish. So I worked with Jeff Amell to turn that handout into a book. And Jeff said, uh, you know, you're, you're not doing the game sense approach. And my colleague, Russell Brown, looked at what I was doing and said, you're doing more than the game sense approach. A lot of people interpret the game sense approach as just play small sided games and ask a few questions, but you are being far more deliberate in suggesting the games has a structured learning environment with a learning intention and the game would reveal moments where you're able to freeze the play or pause for a reflection. And you know those moments are going to occur because you've deliberately structured the game knowing that those moments will occur. So the word that kept 
coming to mind was purpose. I'm, I'm doing this purposefully. The game is purposely structured for a particular learning intention. So it was play and it was with purpose. So that's how I came up with the term play with purpose. Nice. And I, I love that, mate. And I love that you can create a situation in the game because that's when real evidence is taking place. Not when you talk about a scenario or something, when an actual game comes to a head and you're like, wow, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. What do we do now? And, and what I see with that, Shane, is that you're now going into a lot of sports clubs and organisations and and teaching this format or this philosophy is, are you finding that um, where we can deliver this really well in PE settings, but then when you get to amateur sport, professional sport, um, there's a real need for this sort of structured play? Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, reinforced that I might be on a, a good track here with the ideas was some of the work that was coming out of the Australian Football League in the mid-2000s and assistant coaches at the time talking about moving from highly directed training to game-based training. So I could see this movement happening at the elite sport in the sport that I, I did most of my coaching in, which is Australian football. And if it was happening at the elite level and I was getting good success with it in using it as an approach with my own teams, in my PE classes, I couldn't see why it couldn't work in junior sport settings uh, and community environments just as well because in a sense, it's a toolkit. In a sense, it's a bit of a, a recipe that you can play around with. Not all chocolate cakes are chocolate cakes, but they have common ingredients that make it a chocolate cake and not an orange cake. And that's how I look at the, the game sense approach and the idea of play with purpose. There is, there is a toolkit of ideas and you manipulate that toolkit of ideas purposely to bring about particular learning intentions. Um, and it, it works in a it works with juniors, it works with seniors, it works in schools, it works in club community sports. Yeah, I reckon, I, I love this. It's awesome because at the end of the day, what do people want to do? What do kids want to do? They want to play games. They want to play sport. But then also as a coach, um, you want them to be learning. And a lot of times you see organised sport and things like that and they're, they're just playing for the sake of it. Whereas if you can actually get the game aimed towards a conclusion or some situation that they need to figure out, what a powerful way to teach our young juniors and also professionals. Now, I love reading your stuff, mate, and your blog, Learning Through Sport. Um, what else can we find on there? Because I'm sure people listening at home uh, are going to go straight there and want to read more about it because it, it makes sense, mate. The blog's got a couple of different types of, of entries, a couple of types of writing. The first one is where I'll summarise a piece of research that we've done, which I, I think people will be interested in because it has practical application and it may not be possible for people to access the research because it's locked behind a paywall with a journal. So I'll, I'll summarise the, the key ideas for people in the blog. Sometimes it's going back over some of the, um, the great moments in physical education or, or sport teaching publications such as Daryl Seedentop's original work which led to the sport education model or Don Hellison's original first publication which eventually became the TPSR model. There is so much wisdom in those, those early writings and I, I do see a lot of people coming up with what they believe are new ideas but actually those ideas have been popular in the literature and have been popular in 
the physical education or the sports coaching community 20 or 30 years ago, but they've been forgotten. And it's more a remembering of these ideas than coming up with the ideas for the first time. And I do think that in some of the blogs and some of the um, Twitter community and, and the, the megaphoning of ideas, there's not enough referencing and not enough acknowledgement of the ideas that may have stimulated the thoughts that people are putting out there or actually were the origins of those thoughts in the first place. And there's important work to translate those ideas into practice. But as physical education professionals and going through teachers college, if you're my age or university now, we're all taught the importance of referencing in order to give appropriate credit to the original work and some of that is missing. So that's the second type. And then the third type is where I'll, I'll run a workshop and then summarize the main ideas of the workshop, in particular the, the practical um, strategies that people can take into their space after reading it uh, because they may not have been able to get to the event, but you know, a few people might have emailed me and said, we can't get to that event, how do we get the information? So I'll use the blog to summarise the, the workshop and the key ideas so that the information is available. Nice. And I suppose that's one of the beautiful things about presenting live is that there's no better experience. But at the end of the day, there's only one of you or there's only one event and such a big world these days. So I think that's great that you're able to provide, you know, that content and also the, the learnings for teachers and academics that uh, can't come to your sessions. Now, um, I'll have links on the show notes to obviously go and check out that blog and people will be able to go through and just read away and there's, there's endless supply of knowledge and content on there. Now, one thing I really enjoyed talking to you and I remember as in Dubai, Carl Condoleth and myself were sitting over breakfast and we, we started talking about gamification in education. Now, um, do you want to give a little bit of a spin how what your sort of, um, your viewing of gamification in sort of the PE setting is, Shane? Absolutely. It's a really interesting topic. I was, I was watching a, an eSports program on Sunday morning, can't remember whether, I think it was SBS, and they were talking about the improved defensive strategy and capability of Team Y, and why they'll be more able to challenge Team X in the next next play. And I closed my eyes and I listened to this for 15 minutes, and I thought, if I hadn't seen the visual to know that they were talking about eSports, I would think they were talking about football, basketball, netball. I wouldn't know because the nature of the conversation was both technically and alluding to tactically the same as a conversation you would hear around a game of football being analysed. You know, two teams, offensive, defence and transition, strengths and weaknesses. I, I, and I think that's important because eSports is something that physical education teachers and in particular those people that run school sports programs, will be confronted with deciding whether they bring those into their school sports programs. I'm aware in the US that colleges are already providing scholarships to eSports athletes and have eSports as part of their college sports programs. Sydney, I believe, are building their first eSports stadium. In some Eastern European countries and Asian countries, you'll get 50,000, 60,000 people turn up to watch an eSports event. And in one sense, as a spectator, 
watching an esports event is no different than being a spectator in an Australian football game or a netball game. So with that in mind, I, I started to become aware of the, the esports movement about five or six years ago and started to uh, watch my own kids playing on the Xbox and watching them play esports and other digital games and seeing the deep immersion that the games were providing. And I thought, in order to learn to play that game, you, it's really challenging, it's really hard. You get lots of practice at a level and until you develop consistency of technical and tactical understanding at that level, you don't progress to the next level. That's the same challenge that we have in teaching people to be movement competent. It takes a long time. It's tough. It's hard. You have to persist. So on the one hand, we've got declining participation in physical activity across all age groups, and yet we've got increasing engagement in other types of play, such as the digital platforms. And yet the engagement challenge of a digital game is exactly the same engagement challenge of a sport or skateboarding or, or whatever that physical challenge might be. So I asked myself, well, what is it that digital game designers do to develop that deep engagement that get people to persist with something that is long, that is hard and takes 20, 30, 40, sometimes hundreds of hours to reach mastery? And I was really surprised to find out that the, the digital games are informed by the best educational psychology ideas available. So they're designed on educational principles. So then I started to investigate, well, what are those educational principles? And then the irony struck me, well, if digital game designers are basing their construction of play on education psychology and principles of education design, the educators should be doing that as well. So the physical educators, they've got something perhaps they can learn so that they're not teaching for the TV generation, my generation, the TV generation, and they're not teaching for the book generation and the radio generation. They're actually teaching for the digital generation and how the digital generation are being socialised into learning by their dominant communication medium, which is the digital medium. And that's how I got started with it. Yeah, I... I'm, I'm really into this as well, and that's obviously why I brought this up. And um, if people haven't seen uh, or heard much about esports, there's a couple of really fascinating uh, documentaries on Netflix that you can go and uh, just look and, and look at the the like how many people are, are playing it and the amount of money that's in it. I know um, Essendon Football Club, I think Adelaide might as well, you can correct me if not, but they are now acquiring esports teams. So it is something... Shane, that I think is here to stay and that we need to find a way to embrace it. Or what I'm challenging teachers to that I talk to now, I present to or whatever is, how can we use the same game mechanics or buy-in that these video games are doing in our lessons? And for example, one of the games at the moment, I don't know if your kids are playing it or whatever, is Fortnite. Now, I don't know a great deal about this game, but one thing I do know is that every kid is playing it. And that doesn't matter if it's a primary school, high school, anything like that. So um, do you find that people are resisting this sort of change or um, that we really need to sort of adapt our teaching and figure out, right, they're doing something better than what we are in our education. How can we adapt the game mechanics behind that? It's a great question. And there are two 
two different answers to it. The first answer is yes, we need to be aware of it, we need to consider it so that we're teaching for this generation and not, you know, the way the past generation was socialised into learning, which my generation was, was TV and books. My father's generation was radio and books. This generation is books, not so much TV. Talking to young people, they don't watch a lot of TV. It's all YouTube and online and clips and they don't use emails. They're using Skype and other communication channels. So, so tapping into the way video games teach people to be self-reliant, actively independent learners is important because if they come into class having to lockstep follow all at the same time, that is the complete opposite of when they go home and they switch on and play the digital game with our independent self-reliant learners and they can get information just on time to get them through the troubles that they've got. Um, so we do need to be aware of it. One of the first papers I wrote in this space in about 2014 actually looked at some of the um, pedagogy, the best practice pedagogy of physical education, sports coaching and said, you know what, we've actually got a mixture here already, which if we put it together, looks a lot like game mechanics. So it was actually saying to PE teachers that if you've got a best practice approach to your pedagogy, you're probably already designing your curriculum around levels of complexity with clearly designed endpoints, terminal, terminal conditions, and you're letting the students know what those terminal conditions are so they know how to be successful. And you're probably already rewarding students when they reach that terminal condition or the endpoint for the level so they know to power up to the next level. You're probably already letting them negotiate some of the roles that they have in class so that they have multiple ways of expressing their engagement and not a single way of expressing their engagement, which is to be only a player because you're probably using a sport education model or an adaptation of the sport education model, which puts more of the implementation responsibility to the students. So you're having a co-constructed learning environment with the class rather than a teacher-directed environment with the class. So there's, it's already there and it's just alerting people to the fact that this is best practice PE teaching anyway but bringing it to light within the framework of game mechanics can help people look at it through a different lens, take the, the red goggles off and put the yellow goggles on so they're seeing things in a different way. But more generally, the idea of levels, powering up through the levels and rewards for that, is an old motivational tool in education because it's educationally sound. I can remember doing the SRA reading challenge um, back in primary school. I can't remember what colour you started with, but let's say it was blue. Everyone started at level one, and when you finished the 10 reading challenges in blue successfully, you were able to move up to purple. People moved through at different paces. People, um, people, if they didn't succeed in one of the challenges, they went and got another challenge, but then sometime later they had to go back to the one they failed and attempted it again. Um, there was the opportunity to go and get the answer card, mark your own work, reflect on your work, have a conversation, and the teacher was a facilitator. That's very similar to the idea of levels and having clear terminal conditions and reward systems in place that we find in digital game designs. 
So the idea of levels and rewards or badges is not actually a new idea in education, but perhaps is one of those ideas as different ideas come into the curriculum and, and the new fads have their way and everybody's talking about this current way of thinking about curriculum. Those old ideas that have a lot of wisdom and a lot of sensibility to them can be forgotten. And what we find when we actually have a look at the digital game mechanics, we bring back a lot of that old wisdom into the way that we go about designing our classroom experiences. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that there's always been game mechanics in the classroom or in teaching or in PE settings. It just is nowhere near as good as what they're using in video games. And I think that's the challenge we face as educators to, um, I don't think we'll ever have the same buy-in that video games get, but I, I tell you what, we can use the positives of what they are able to do and the engagement they create. Um, and hopefully, you know, that's something that teachers can uh, adapt to. Now, Shane, I just want to finish off with one thing, mate, because you've been so generous with your time. Um, I always like to ask, most of, uh, most of my guests this, but um, I, I call it a wisdom bomb. If you could see young Shane Pill back in the day, first day of teaching or first day of teacher's training or teacher's college, what is one bit of wisdom that you would give yourself that you know now that you would have loved to know your first day as a teacher? Don't be afraid to walk through the doors. Uh, again, coming back to where we started, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have a wife who has encouraged me to walk through the, the doors of opportunity as they've been opened. Uh, whereas I might have said to myself, well, I'm more likely to have said to myself, oh, no, that, not really sure about that, not really confident that I can do that, worried about failing um, at it, etc. So having the having the confidence that it's it's a good it's a great opportunity for growth and, and having that encouragement to walk through the doors of opportunity. I've grown to be, um, I continue to grow and I continue to be uh, improving as a person, as a professional all the time. The temptation to be as good as you were in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s uh, is there because it's comfortable. And, and as a reader, I've, one of the things that I've, I've learnt is that the natural human condition is not to be uncomfortable. It's actually to seek to be comfortable. So that's why change is hard and that's why very few people um, are enthusiastic about the idea of changing. And that's why in many schools we walk into, health and physical education programs look pretty much the same as what they did in the 1960s and 1970s. Even though we know that those programs have some very problematic nature about them, and the literature is really clear about what to change in order for those problematic elements of the multi-activity directed physical education program uh, to be remediated. But change is hard, change is confronting because it requires effort and, and you, know, you have a choice to put the effort in or not put the effort in. And I'm very blessed uh, to have had that encouragement throughout my life to, to put the effort in. 
I think, uh, and, and one of the big things you mentioned there with your lovely wife, Shane, is that um, I think if it's a wife, it's a partner, it's a friend, if you've got people around you that will encourage you to try new things or step out of your comfort zone every now and then, I don't mean do this all the time or with your lesson creation or um, anything like that, but um, as you've heard from Shane, and, and I can vouch for this as well, that um, the best things normally happen when you are pushed outside your comfort zone and um, so many things are possible. Now, um, Shane, thank you so much for your time today, mate. Um, you're on Twitter. Where can we catch you on Twitter, buddy? At Pilly66. And I'll, uh, I'll have a link into that in the show notes. And just before you go, mate, I've just got one, probably the most important question. Um, Adelaide Football Club have uh, gone from grand finalist to the wilderness, mate. What's happened? Oh, if you can't put your best team out on the park on a weekly basis, your performance is going to be compromised. The The long-term question is whether the Adelaide Football Club will be better for this experience because of the games that it's been able to get into its young players who otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to get these games of AFL football into them. So there is the potential for a long-term benefit from the short-term pain that they're experiencing at the moment. Obviously, the fan base keen for success because it's been 20 years, 21 years between premierships. There's a, there's an appetite for immediate success, but as a as a coach, you could be looking at this and going, we can't control some of what's happened to us. We can look at how we can remediate the spate of hamstring injuries by doing our pre-season program differently next year. We can learn from some of the other aspects of our leadership program that perhaps didn't hit the mark, but we've got five, 10, 15 games of AFL football into blokes this year that might not have got a game or might have only got two or three. And the saying goes that you really don't know whether somebody is going to make it as an AFL footballer until you've got 40, 30 to 40 games in them. So they've had the capacity to test players that otherwise may not have been been tested and that could be very good for them in the next two or three years because they might be able to make earlier calls on some players uh, and where they sit in the future of the club than they otherwise would have been able to do. I think that's a great answer mate and uh, very positive news to your midfield before Rory Sloan signing on for another five years. Probably We've probably got uh, listeners all over the world thinking what are these two guys actually talking about but if you don't know it's the greatest game in the world and uh, Shane's a very passionate Adelaide Crow supporter um, and I think that uh, you'll bounce back next year but uh, Billy thanks again for your time the, mate. One of the things yeah sorry mate, one right, of the things that's really interesting is that when I do have the opportunity now to speak around the world I'll often wear a pair of Adelaide football <laughs> club shorts yep. uh, you know, dress shorts with the pockets yep and I do that deliberately because the Aussies in the audience will connect straight away and start talking to you about your football team. So it's a wonderful way of breaking down barriers and finding out where the Aussies are in the group that you're talking to. And I remember when we were in Dubai, you got heckled for wearing those shorts as well, mate. So <laughs> a great, great way to start a conversation, I reckon. But um, as I was saying, Jay, thanks so much for your time, buddy. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I can guarantee people would have got a lot out of everything you mentioned today. So thank you very much, mate. Oh, you're welcome. I'm blessed to have this opportunity. Thanks, Dale.
Stop, don't go anywhere. If you love today's episode, then you'll love to stay up to date with everything we are producing. If you are part of the Apple family and have an iPhone or an iPad, simply go to Energetic Education on iTunes and you'll be able to download our new app for free. This app has all of our videos we've created, our blogs, and every episode of the podcast where you will never miss another episode. So go and download today and start enjoying this free app.